1: Hello. If you like Gina Calada and getting caught with your aid, then you're in the right place. Welcome to The Bunker. On today's edition, it's a Hancock affair, but what does the Health Secretary's self-destruction say about security in the halls of power and the state of Boris Johnson's power in his own party? How does it all connect with the fallout from the Cheshireman-Amerson by-election? We'll be talking it over with special guest Christine Jardine, Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West plus as the government continues to put sticking plasters over gaping wounds to the economy how should we future-proof industry and employment to really build back better and later in the show if you thought 5g mobile signals were fun wait till you get a load of 6g which will enable bill gates to control your mind even more efficiently all that and more on this week's bunker Welcome to this week's panel edition of the podcast with me, Andrew Harrison. Before we start, exciting news. Our much postponed debut live show, The Bunker vs. Oh God, What Now? is now happening on Tuesday the 10th of August at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. You can join me and regulars Yasmin, Sahan, Arthur Snell and Ahir Shah, plus the Oh God, What Now? team of Ian Dunt, Dorian Linsky, Nomi Smith and Alex Andreo in a thrilling show of two halves. Tickets for this pod clash are out now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Patreon people, you get 10% off with a special discount code, so search your inboxes. In fact, it's a good reason to sign up for Patreon everybody else. It'll be a great night, and we're really looking forward to it. But now, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Family. Hello, Miata. How are you doing?
2: Hi, really well. Thank you for having me on.
1: Glad to have you back. We've got an economy heavy addition a bit later. The world seems a bit split between recovery optimists and pessimists at the moment. The International Labour Organization is warning that COVID's going to cut 100 million full time jobs in the global economy. And yes, at the same time, there's like really high confidence in employment, the highest we've seen in eight years. You know, employment shortages in, in industries like hospitality and construction. Where do you fall? Is the glass filling up? Is it half empty?
2: So I'm, I'm definitely on the slightly pessimistic scale. I mean, I think the recovery has been pretty phenomenal. Um, I think as the economy has opened up, things have bounced back really quickly. Um, but I think there is a risk that we become a bit um, complacent with what's happening in the labour market. And actually, the Resolution Foundation put out a really good report today uh, that basically says that we're overestimating just how strong the labour market is um, and all of this talk of things rebalancing in favour of workers, uh, increases uh, in wages are probably overestimated because if you look underneath the bonnet... Uh, And one of the indicators is, you know, the amount of hours people are actually working is about five to seven percent below where it was pre-crisis. So I think things are still uh, tough. I think the furlough is still masking some of that toughness. Uh, And I suspect over the course of the next six months, as things start shaking out, we'll get a better sense of things, particularly if the government decides to roll back some of its support measures. And Mm. the argument many of us are trying to make is, you know, don't be too bullish. Don't assume it's all OK and pull back uh, the support measures that are keeping businesses afloat, uh, that are supporting uh, workers, because the long-term scarring of doing that could be really, really, really very dangerous.
1: After the last kind of comp- comparable shock to the economy, which is probably the Second World War, labour shortages were filled by, by migrants. And now we've got uh, people like Tim Martin complaining about the problems he's found recruiting foreign labour. Do you think that we might actually see this attitude changed sort of turning the tide to attitudes to, uh, to Brexit. There's just the need for employees in these industries.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we were going to see that anyway. One of the, you know, the biggest risks with trying to kind of rip up our uh, migration uh, policy and tightening it up was that there were big sectors like construction, uh, like agriculture, that were really, really going to suffer because they are hugely dependent on migrant labour. And I don't think that's changed. And the fact that the pandemic has further disrupted, you know, people coming in and out of countries um, in order to do jobs, I think is going to make it really, really tough. So, you know, I think... You know, the, the Brexit impact on our economy is still bubbling through. I don't think we've fully really felt the impacts of that. Um, but one side of it that we will see quite quickly is, you know, really important work that uh, people that were coming here um, as immigrants were doing will see big shortages. And it's not clear uh, that we'll be able to fill them quickly enough.
1: Also joining us, we have journalist, lobby writer, author of Haven't You Heard? A ruthless and highly entertaining look into Westminster's gossip culture, Marie LeConte. Hello, Marie.
3: Hello. Thanks for having
1: me. Well, welcome back to the bunker. So, I, I want to ask you, as a keen observer of uh, you know Westminster peculiarities, what did you make of the Conservative MP Joy Morrissey starting this campaign to make posters of the Queen available to everybody who wants one? This idea that we should be applying money into distributing pictures of Her Majesty. As an openly French person, an unashamedly French person, will you be requiring a photo of Her Majesty for your home?
3: Uh, So what I will say is that, no, I will not get one for myself. (laughs) However, if there's a loophole that guarantees that you can send one to any address, I will absolutely send so many portraits of the Queen to all my friends. Like, generally, every birthday, every (laughs) anniversary, like, it will literally just always be a picture of the Queen. It's going to be great. It's going to save me so much money.
1: What is the thinking behind that? I mean, obviously, at one level, you know exactly what the thinking is. It's to get Joy Morrissey on the telly and in the papers. But is there any kind of you know r- r- rhyme or reason or logic behind this do you think
3: uh, i'm not really sure but so what i find quite interesting about her is that she's uh, so she's american she was born and bred uh, in indiana mm. um and kind of went to school there and everything and actually only moved i think to britain to do a master's degree um so, so i don't know i mean it strikes me as basically yeah, a kind of like conservative foreigner's view of what britain should be i guess like it, it feels mm. quite american to me of being like yes you know they just have, have this great big picture everywhere. That's what you do here, isn't it? Um, that, that's Yeah, that, that's what it struck me as.
1: Yeah, it's quite downturn, isn't it? It's quite sort of hats and, uh, and tea and crumpets and that kind of thing. I'm just glad that we know like, there's one Morrissey who hates the Queen and then this is the Morrissey who likes the Queen. Very easy to sort of remember which one's which now.
3: Yeah, yeah, one always lies and one always tells the truth.
1: Absolutely. And you're only allowed to ask one of them a question. We're delighted to be joined this week by Christine Jardine, Liberal Democrat, Treasury Spokesperson and MP for Edinburgh West. Welcome back to The Bunker, Christine. How are you?
4: Good afternoon. I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having
1: me. Hello. Thank, you for, thank you for coming to us from Edinburgh, which is great. We now feel like we're an international podcast.
4: Oh, that's not
2: the thing <laughs>
1: Well, because the still, nations are still part of the country. It's all part, yeah, it, it, it kind of works. Last week on that particular issue, in fact, we saw this row between Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon over the travel restrictions placed between Manchester and Scotland. It seemed to be a very strange, and a very kind of particular thing to think to about Manchester of all places. What's your take on this?
4: It was astonishing. I mean, really, it's the sort of thing that if anybody else, like, if you know, the Mayor of, of London, or Andy Burnham for that matter, or the Prime Minister had said, well, you know what, we don't want people from Edinburgh travelling to the rest of the United Kingdom and we're not allowing anybody to go to Edinburgh and hadn't consulted Nicola Sturgeon, hadn't even phoned her to warn her it was coming, she would have gone nuts, quite hmm. rightly, because, you know, that's well it is rude you could on one level but on another level um if you look at what nicola said and what nicola did and the way it was handled it shows a complete lack of respect for the you know another um, almost autonomous region of the country with a, the devolved power, the devolved authority. Andy Burnham represents millions of people in the same way as Nicola Sturgeon does and she just dismissed him out of hand and when he um, complained about it, because the way he actually found out about it was he was on a broadcast and um, someone calling in, as I understand it, asked him about it and said, you know, I've just had my holiday cancelled in Scotland because of this travel ban and that was the first he'd heard about it. Mm. To behave that way towards another elected representative is quite astonishing. But it kind of reflects the way that the Scottish government behaves within Scotland. They show complete lack of respect for local authorities and for the councils, and they kind of ride roughshod over them. And this was a wee bit, it sort of um, betrayed Nicola's attitude towards um, local authorities. It betrayed the Scottish government's attitude. And it was... At a time when, you know, we're all trying to work together, we're all trying to communicate with one another and, you know, tackle COVID on a national scale, to say that people can come from one part of the country is wrong, particularly when that part of the country is not as bad as um, Dundee was mm. at the time. But also, it kind of constitutionally, it was stretching Nicola's power to a strange point because... Once you leave Scotland, the Scottish government has no say over where you go and what you do. So how are they going to track where where people went? What were they going to do? Um, Were they going to ask Greater Manchester Police to police it? Now, Greater Manchester Police, um, they're not beholden or um, answerable in any way to the Scottish government. So the whole thing was just ridiculous, and it looked very much like a nicola just nicola Sturgeon just trying to be you know play politics. and it hasn't gone down very well in Scotland amongst a lot of people either.
1: You're one of four Lib Dem MPs in Scotland at the moment. In what can often feel like a, a country you know completely dominated by one party, the SNP. Across the rest of the country, we hear all lots of talk about progressive alliances to get the Conservatives out. Where is the unionist alliance in Scotland? Where is where is the kind of coming together of the parties that uh, are, are against Scottish independence, stroke separatism? Because it seems you know. But one of the most influential parties in the country, the Conservative Party, is the one that has kind of made separation much more likely by its activities.
4: Well, the strange thing is, if you look at the Scottish election results, you'll find that there is um, the country split down the middle. Um, Scotland split down the middle on independence, and what you found was that. In constituencies, particularly, uh, because as you know, we have the constituency and the list vote here. Constituencies, hmm. particularly, people were looking for the person who would best champion the, um, the union, um, hmm. for want of a better term, and you know who were anti-independent. And in Edinburgh West, um, that was, uh, well, Edinburgh Western, which is mostly co with Edinburgh West. That was my colleague, Alex Cole-Hamilton, who um, got a phenomenal result uh, in terms of his majority. Um, and Willie Rennie and North East Fife got a huge majority as well. And there were Conservative MPs and Labour MPs that were exactly the same. And there seems to be a kind of understanding the voters are leading the way. They are deciding um, mm. how they will vote tactically in this. We've had about... Uh, the first kind of tactical voting in Scotland was in 2015 and it's developed since then and now the voters are kind of leading the way themselves. Um, in terms of a progressive alliance, I think there's been a lot of talk about it, but it, I don't think the voters would thank any parties for trying to stitch up seats, which is how they would see it. The voters are entitled to choose themselves and it's what we've seen in Scotland, as I said, the voters are leading the way and they're choosing who they think is you know, either the best person to promote independence, which is the SNP, or they are choosing the best um, anti-independence pro-UK party that they think will win. And that, I think, is the way it should be. It should be up to the voters. It shouldn't be any kind of alliance that removes the choice from people.
1: Now, you're not going to believe this, but a cabinet minister has resigned after getting caught in what the papers call a steamy tryst with aide Gina Collardangelo, Health Secretary Matt Hancock admitted defeat on Saturday, became the first person to resign from Boris Johnson's cabinet since Sajid Javid in February 2020. Javid was quickly announced as his replacement and now begins the tricky task of sorting out a bulging in-tray at the Department of Health. But what about the fall of the House of Hancock? Marie, we've almost forgotten what it feels like for a minister to resign under this uh, government. Were you surprised when he announced that he was going right in the middle of the Wales game?
3: So um, Yes and no, I'd say. So I was um, I was not surprised when Number 10 said they were standing by him, because I feel like that's what we've seen time and time and time again over the past few years. But, but it, you know, it, it did not look tenable. I think the main problem, weirdly, for Hancock was not that people were angry, because, again, as we've seen countless times, I think the, this government is very comfortable with people being very angry at their ministers. Um, I think the problem for him was that everyone was making fun of him. Um, you know, he'd become, I can't remember, I think it was a show on Times Radio or something where guests could not stop laughing and making gags <laughs> when talking about <laughs> Hancock. And I think that that is actually weirdly a lot less tenable. So I think anger subsides eventually, but you can't really be a health secretary in a pandemic when everyone is just making knob gags um, about you. <laughs> um, so weirdly, I think I think that's what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, to a large extent, though, much as we're enjoying it, the affair is not the story. The huge things that stand out among them is you know the breach of CCTV uh, security, which is astonishing, and still we don't really know how this these tapes were were you know came into the possession of the son, and also Hancock using private emails for government business in a way that leaves no paper trail, so that we don't really know what deals he's been doing with their, you know, with, with, with private entities. On the CCTV thing, how much of it is common knowledge in the House that ministers have recorded? This certainly is rather a shock that they're being filmed all the time.
3: Um, I think there was none. And I, I would say I'm not 100% certain of this. I would assume that actually government departments have CCTV in corridors and at reception, etc., I would be surprised, actually, if other secretaries of state and ministers had um, CCTV in their offices. So I think and I have, again, no idea if it's true, but it did look like it made sense that actually Matt Hancock's office at the DFH um, had been a slightly repurposed room. That was, I think, used to be something else, a part of a corridor or something, um, which is why there was a camera there. The camera was never removed from back when that room was something else, um, Hmm. which I think would make would really make sense to me. Because I I don't believe I don't believe that yeah ministers offices, you know, have CCTV in them.
1: The entire media strategy before Hancock quit was for number 10 to say that the affair was a private matter for Johnson to declare the matter closed. And it really didn't wash with people that an aide aid hired on public money is kind of, shall we say, behaving in breach of lockdown rules, that this is somehow n- n- not a matter of, of, of public interest. Had Boris Johnson built a situation for him where, it, where it's impossible for him to sack a minister, even for such flagrant behaviour of this, because because of his own behaviour?
3: um I think it's partly that I think it's also that this is and that was definitely true um when Dominic Cummings was in number 10 but I think it's still true now that I think this is a government that does not want to be told what to do by the press um which is not exactly constructive because I think that that means that the press can quite reasonably call for something and then number 10 will sort of act like a toddler saying well you know now I'm not doing it which is an ideal but um but I think yes, I think it's mostly that. But but yeah, sure. I mean, can you imagine the headlines if yeah, famous cheater Boris Johnson um, yes. had had fired. And um, but that being said, so I yeah, I would say personally, I think the angle of the story I find most interesting, and the one where I, I suspect that actually will never really get to the bottom of it is when did the affair start? Because I think it's a very different story. So I'm, I tend to be quite French about affairs, um, due to being <laughs> French. Yes. Uh, yes. So happens to the best of us. But uh, but but you know. So I think that if it if if it did just happen kind of organically after they started working together, I personally think that's not really my business. However, if they already were having an affair by the point he hired her, then I think that is an absolutely massive story. And effectively, you know, in the context of the pandemic as well, did he? You know, there's a scenario here in which he hired her to be able to keep on having his affair despite the pandemic happening. And that strikes me as a much, much bigger story than, you know, two colleagues effectively ending up having an affair. So I think these are kind of, they're still a slightly like shredding a story. We can't quite tell which one it is yet. And I doubt and we'll be able to find out actually, because they've been friends since university. Mm. in that case, like, how, how can you pinpoint if you're, you know, if you're neither of those people, how can you say with certainty when something started?
1: Do you think this cuts through? Because unlike failure to manage the vaccination or lying about care homes or failure to be open about procurement, which is all terribly, terribly confusing. A sex scandal is pretty straightforward and people understand it. You know, he was he was having a Lego with somebody he shouldn't have been. That makes sense to the person in the street.
3: Oh, yes. And also I think and obviously, you know, Twitter is very much not the country, but there were many, many sort of incredibly angry tweets from people as well, saying, "Well, you know, I could not do X or Y or Z, you know, attend a funeral or you know see my sort like very close friend who's ill, etc., because of Matt Hancock's rules." So mm-hmm. it is unfair. It's exactly, I think, it mirrors in that respect, kind of exactly the Dominic Cummings at uh, Barnard Castle. Um, stuff from last summer. So, I, yeah, I've, I've been surprised actually, I'd say on a personal note, how much that resonated rather than the affair itself with the other concerns about it. I think just very much the idea of he was, you know, he made our lives miserable for a good reason, but he was not obeying his own rules. I think what was probably the biggest thing in terms of public opinion and why it cut through quite so much.
1: Christine, uh, th- this issue of using a private Gmail address to conduct government business, thereby removing any kind of a paper trail. I mean, this was essentially. But this was Hillary Clinton. Bought her emails, wasn't it? How serious a matter is this?
4: I, I don't know enough of the background of what it was that. Mm. Um, well, I can't because it was a private email. But <laughs> I don't. I don't know enough of the background to um, comment on what may or may not have happened. But the comparison you draw with Hillary Clinton is a is a valid one. Private emails are a strange thing. I, th- I think it's different when you're a minister if you're talking specifically about government business, there should be a paper trail. And there there should be, my own personal view is that there should be accessibility to anything which is of national importance or could be relevant to government business. And I think if for so I can imagine that it might be easy to do it by mistake occasionally. But if you do, then make it available. So it just seems a bit strange, especially after as you say that there was so much fuss about Hillary Clinton. I would have thought government ministers would have been very aware of it. Yeah. Um, but I think we, you know, we we have to see what happens there. I would, you know, I would, I would agree with what everybody else has said. I don't think the the thing which has has led to Matt Hancock's resignation was anything private about his behaviour or allegations or anything like that. It was simply the hypocrisy of being someone who was responsible for, you know, took part in making the rules that the rest of us have been abiding by and then Mm -hmm. being seen to break them. And you can't have a minister, as someone else said, who is... Um, is becoming a laughing stock, becoming the butt of jokes, and all the satirical plays. When your credibility is gone as a minister, it's very, very difficult to continue. And I think that's what it was. I don't think it was the, I don't think it was um, uh, you know an affair in itself, but it. And also, it, unless there are questions um, in any situation about the propriety of of how government business was done or any threat to national security or anything like that, then it becomes relevant. But I think in this case, it was Matt Hancock's credibility which was lost.
1: Miata, we now have a new health secretary and it's uh, Sajid Javid. Uh, The shadow health secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, likened his appointment to putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop, given his record on austerity, the, his current employment with J.P. Morgan. There may be conflicts of interest there. W- what are you expecting from Sajid Javid as a health secretary?
2: So I think he's still quite untested. I mean, I, I, I'm nervous about him um, as a health secretary for two reasons. Um, I think, you know, this is a incredibly difficult portfolio the set of things that will be on his entry are pretty you know phenomenal for any minister Um, and I think he's still quite green he's actually still quite untested he hasn't delivered kind of big things within government so I think that's a problem but but also I think his instincts um, are problematic you know he is of that kind of free market That's right, school of thinking. Um, You know, he's, um, when I worked in government, you know, he was known for having a big old giant picture of Thatcher um, above his desk in his office. And I just think that that, you know, that entire ideology is... is of a bygone age. I don't think it's relevant to the here and now. Um, I don't think that approach is going to work with the challenges facing the NHS. You know, we've just had, uh, you know, today, the the sort of crazy decisions that were made by Chris Grayling to try and privatise the probation service has been completely reversed because it was just not fit for purpose. Uh, And I desperately hope he doesn't try to apply that ideology to how you fix some of the problems in both the health sector, but also the social care sector. And I think that's the the real danger point Um, because actually, you need pragmatism. You need to kind of understand the intrinsic um, strengths um, of a national health service that is, you know, publicly owned and publicly uh, delivered. You know, I think this jury's still out on where he'll try and go on some of that.
1: Christine, this this has been possibly the most difficult week this government has had. If you discount direct COVID matters of of actual lockdowns in terms of the the internal politicking and maintaining the the kind of Johnson core team, we are sort of quite leery of making predictions on this podcast. But do you think it's affected his authority and his standing in the country to be so behind events and to to kind of have to be seen, you know, making a strong defence of Hancock on Saturday morning and by Saturday tea time he's gone?
4: I think there has undoubtedly been a difficult week for the government some of their flaws have been thrown into the spotlight we all knew the thing about um the, the health dealing with the health crisis is that we knew there were problems with test and trace we knew that there had there had been problems that the travel industry was unhappy about that we knew that um, a lot of people were unhappy about the way it had been managed the the PPE for frontline services all of that and then this week Matt Hancock's um, credibility is cast into doubt and I think it has shown there are important questions to be asked about how the pandemic has been handled by the government and that is what has come out of this week, that there has to be a public inquiry and it has to be sooner rather than later because we need to we need to have a successful recovery and so far Rishi Sunak has not given us a long-term plan either so that's another issue that has to be tackled but I think it has thrown doubt on the government's handling of the entire pandemic. And we need to have some some serious questions answered, and we need to have them answered soon. Um, And I think we're beginning to see people having doubts. We saw the Liberal Democrat victory in Cheshire and Amersham was about the doubts that people are having about the Conservative Party in large areas of the country and about how actually the kind of Politics in this country is changing in a lot of ways. And and I think this week will turn out to have been crucial.
1: Well, let's talk about that cheshire and by-election for, for a minute. I mean, this was this is your happy place. 8,000 majority, 57% of the vote. had a lot of talk about the blue wall ready to crumble. John, uh, Johnson has pushed his luck too much with traditional Tories. Is that kind of top-line analysis we've had from a lot of places, what, what you've been hearing, was, was that what it was, that essentially traditional Conservatives were annoyed at uh, all the talk of levelling up and Red Wall and so forth? There is something else going on?
4: I think there was, it was a lot of things. I think you had the the spectrum of a Conservative government, which has let down the people who voted for it. And people in Cheshire and Amersham, a lot of the voters there feel actually abandoned by the Conservative Party. We have businesses up and down this country, um, independent businesses, small businesses who are struggling to get by. And they see that the government is, you know, it's got its furlough scheme and it is doing a lot, but... So many people have been excluded and those people voted Conservative and are now unhappy with a government that's not listening to them. And I think, yes, they're seeing that the government is talking about levelling up, it's talking about the north. But it's not that they're offended by that. It's that you can't be all things to all people and you can't say one thing to one part of the country and another to another part and not that not catch up with you eventually. And that's what's happening to the Conservative Party. Um, and I think in Cheshire and Amersham, there was also the fact that the, the planning reform, which is going through at the moment, people simply don't like it. And there was a lot of unhappiness about the way that HS2 has been dealt with by the Conservative Party. So there were a lot of factors in Cheshire and Amersham, but the biggest single one is that a lot of people who voted for the Conservative Party are not happy. And a lot of them feel that they have been abandoned and are being ignored by them.
1: Well, you mentioned there that the question of the planning bill and HS2, a, a lot of the press, and not just on the right, did attack the Liberal Democrats for essentially fighting on on a, on a NIMBY platform uh, in Jeshom and That um, Sarah Green was uh, strongly against the planning bill, We said she should be a thorn in the side of HS2. Is it strictly progressive of the Liberal Democrats to be sort of running on these old school ideas? You know, we need housing development, but not here.
4: No, what we say is that we do need housing and we need it in the right places. But the planning um, legislation, which is going through at the moment, is deeply flawed. It's not nimbyism to say that a national strategy is flawed. And that mm. is what we are saying. We are saying that what the government is proposing in the planning bill will not work. It is flawed. There are places in this, we need more housing in this country, and there are places where we can build housing, and there are green belt areas that we have to protect. But what we need is a proper strategy that takes account of uh, local need. So that is our position on that. That wasn't NIMBYism at all. It's, mm. But it comes back to what I said, was that the people in Chesham and Amersham feel that the Conservative government doesn't listen to them anymore. It has taken them for granted. And they had, actually, in Cheryl Gillan, a terrific MP, a fantastic MP, who didn't always follow... Um, the party line. She opposed HS2. Now the Liberal Democrats. We are not opposed to HS2, but Cheryl Gillan was prepared to stand up for what she believed in, and Sarah Green is very much of the same mould. She will stand up for what is best for her constituency, and I think people voted for for that. They voted for that with Cheryl Gillan, and I, I hope that that's you know one of the reasons they voted for Sarah Green as well. But I think the basic thing is they felt ignored and taken for granted. By a Conservative government.
1: Meanwhile, outside the Westminster bubble universe, you might have noticed that the economy is in a strange and precarious state. After the biggest contraction in output in several centuries, we're now panicking about inflation. But while fears are rife about what happens when government finally removes the support measures it put in place, like furlough, there's little talk about how to prepare for a radically different future apart from the usual platitudes about building back better. So, how should we rebuild the economy and future proof it? Miata Fambula, this is your wheelhouse. You are the New Economics Foundation. What is the scale of the economic challenge facing the governments at the moment? We've got, you know, the economy's 9% smaller than it was before COVID.
2: Yeah, look, I think it's huge, and I think it's easy to underestimate just how big the challenge is because of, the, if you like, the short-term recovery as we open up uh, the economy. But just to put it in context, you know, at the start of this year, the economy was like nine, ten percent smaller than it was uh, before the crisis. That's double the scale of hit than when we had in the financial crisis. You know, people talk about the deepest recession for three hundred years. That is absolutely phenomenal. Unemployment is set to increase, uh, to double uh, by the end of this year. So it's a massive challenge. Mm. But I think the thing that makes it all the more profound is, you know, it comes off the back of an economy that was ailing for, you know, a decade well before the um, pandemic. And the thing I still come back to is, you know, we entered this pandemic with living standards not having budged since 2008. I mean, that is absolutely unprecedented. And the government's watchdog is, watchdog is saying that average wages won't return back to 2008 levels until 2026. That's getting oh. on for 20 years in which average wages have not moved, living standards have not budged. And we've not had that in our recent history. And like, that is the nub, <laughs> and that is the size of the problem that the government needs to confront.
1: But, you know, we were talking before the podcast, I asked you for your thoughts on this, and you came up with like four points that you know we should be investing to accelerate climate transition, we should be creating a living income, we should actually properly level up with transferring power away from London to the rest of the country. And we should reset business by taking control away from boards and spreading it amongst amongst workers. Let's talk about that levelling up bit from, from firstly, because it's the one we hear of all the time in the news. Firstly, are you any closer to understanding what the government means by that? We've had this £4.8 levelling up fund announced in March. Do we even know what's in it?
2: So I think the government itself doesn't know what it means by levelling up. Um, I think it's alighted on a really good slogan uh, that I think captures the you know the, the mood in parts of the country that feel like actually. Uh, it 's an unequal it 's been an unequal sort of development, and you know parts of the country have been left behind but behind that slogan there isn 't very much um, and there isn 't very much in terms of an actual strategy there isn 't very much in terms of what as a set of policies you would actually do to do this, but critically there isn 't very much in terms of cash and the thing I keep saying is you cannot level up on the cheap uh, you know the communities that we the, you know the government says it wants to level up have been denuded of investment for Years And so unless you're willing to pump cash into those communities alongside a proper plan for how you create jobs, how you um, reskill or upskill people, how you invest in you know, social infrastructure. And by that, I mean the local services, uh, social care, health and public services that make communities work. Unless you're willing to do that, all we have is a slogan and some pretty shallow action. And the 4.8 billion, some people say it's a start, I say it's an insult. Um, It is a fraction of what's needed to do the job. And when you put it against the backdrop of the scale of cuts that communities have seen over the last decade, it pales in comparison. Bringing it
1: down to actual industries and actual business sectors that would Future-proof the economy, give it a, a way to grow differently and better and not simply to uh, return to what we had in the kind of, the, you know, the period I suppose in the future will look at as between the financial crisis and COVID. What are those industries that need investment and what kind of investment do they need?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So the the two things that, and this is how I thought about it in a really sort of practical way, the two things that we know is we are going through a transition to net zero. Uh, We've got legal commitments to do that. We know we have to do it as an imperative. And so we know that that means that there are sectors that will grow, uh, particularly in the transitional period, we've got to take carbon out of our economy. And that means like bread and butter You know, we have huge amounts of both housing, uh, but also commercial buildings that we have to insulate, that we've got to retrofit, that we've got to uh, get using different sources of energy. And at the moment, we're moving really slowly. So that's an area where actually we need to invest in order to make that happen quickly. But there are huge numbers of jobs that could be created in that industry. We also know that we've got to continue expanding renewables. Again, it's a sector that can be invested in. We know that actually we've got industries that we're always going to need. So parts of construction, uh, the steel industry, we're we're always going to need steel. We're always going to need people to build. And at the moment, they're building in a really carbon intensive way. And we need to start building in a way that is far more efficient in carbon terms. The same way, we're going to need steel, but we've got to find a way of getting the carbon out of our steel. And that means investing in the technology that will allow us to do that. So you know there's a high end technology stuff that is a huge opportunity, but there's some just foundational stuff uh, that we know we're gonna have to ramp up In order to do the transition and we should be putting money into that and then the final bit for me is you know when we talk about green jobs people normally think about renewables they'll think about energy efficiency retrofitting Uh, but when we've done the analysis of sectors that are low carbon actually care jobs public sector jobs are inherently low carbon in nature and we're always going to need people to look after us. We're going to need people to look after our children, um, our people who, are, people who are getting older in an aging society. Uh, we're going to need those services as part of a functioning society. And actually, there are jobs, you know, there's huge demand. The TUC did its analysis, and there are about 800,000 jobs that are required across the public sector in order just to get us to operate effectively. Again, jobs that could be invested in, that could be created. So a transition's coming. We know the shape of it. We know the kinds of jobs that could be created. And now it's a question of political will. Are you willing to invest at the scale of ambition that could both help us accelerate the transition quickly, but also create jobs at the same time?
1: Christine, last year, Ed Davey uh, announced a £150 billion green coronavirus recovery plan, uh, said it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to reshape the economy. What is the Lib Dem position on exactly how the economy needs to be reshaped so that we're not simply trying to recreate what was?
4: Well, what we need to do is exactly what it's been hearing about. We need to we need to regard this as this has been a challenge of several lifetimes, this pandemic for any government, but it is also actually an opportunity. That we have to, in rebuilding, reshape the economy, to transition to green jobs, to transition away from a carbon economy, to look at things like um, the airline industry, for example, is facing the biggest crisis in its history so, and it needs help, it needs support. But along with that, you should you should, if you like, use a carrot and a stick, say to them, yes, of course, you're going to have support, but we need to start looking at how we use sustainable fuels in short-haul flights because they are available. We need to look at what we had in our manifesto, which is um, an accelerating range of um, APPD, an increasing range where, you know, if you're going away on holiday once a year or to visit family, then you don't pay um, air passenger duty, but if you're going on business trips every other week to the other Side of the planet, then yes, you hmm. will pay an increasing amount. That sort of thing. We need imaginative measures, and we need, in this, we need a recovery fund. That's what Ed was talking about to replace the the um, income which uh, companies have lost and you know encourage them to create green jobs as we move forward to things like we should stop putting gas central heating in houses and have thermal heating pumps it's you know it's not that difficult to do if you're building a new housing estate to put in a different type of of heating and that is the sort of thing we should be looking at and that creates green jobs We should also be looking at how we we transition away from, use the North Sea, use the technology that they've developed in the North Sea to transition into greener, renewable fuels. That's the way we need to go. We have an opportunity in this, and we're not taking it. This government, what I find most frustrating and depressing about this government is that they keep coming up with sticking plasters. They're not giving us a long-term strategy for how we recover, how we improve standards of standards of living. How do we get away from that situation where the, the average wage hasn't increased that much in going on 20 years? How do we get away from that? Well we need a long-term strategy for recovery. And so far everything we've had in this is knee-jerk reaction. And the worst part of it is for me that it's all going to come to cliff edge in September. We're also seeing you know some of the the support removed on the first, you know, later this week on the first of July and yet businesses aren't open yet. The government doesn't ever come to Parliament with a long-term strategy to get the country back on its feet to recover. A lot of the other G7 countries are are recovering an awful lot better than us. We need a long-term plan, and we also need to help our independent businesses. We need to look at how we come up with a sort of windfall tax, because a lot of companies have benefited hugely, the Amazons of this world, through the increase in online sales. And that is threatening to put smaller independent businesses out of business. So we need to look, away at, uh, look at a way of just having a one-off way of of helping them, of them contributing to the recovery in general. And that is the sort of thing that we are just not getting from this government.
1: Marie, we're often told, you know, it's the economy, stupid. It's one of the kind of political truisms that the economy trumps everything. This this generation of voters seems the least interested in the economy of my lifetime. That they're, they're, they're into stories. They're into conflict. They're into narrative and myth. And they kind of seem to primarily care about the economy if it serves those stories, if it fits into them. You know, what Christine is saying is very persuasive. What is saying is saying is very persuasive too. But is a party on a hide into nothing if it if it's a purely economic message, if it can't kind of wrap it in the sort of drama and counterfactual argument that won the Brexit referendum or won Boris Johnson the twenty nineteen general election?
3: Huh. I I think that's a really interesting question. And I would suspect that something changed. I I don't know exactly when, because I suspect that, because obviously after the financial crash, I think the Conservatives were able to basically just talk about the economy and the nation's finances and so on, kind of win off the back of that. Whereas I think that, and I'm not really sure where it's come from, I've been trying to think about it, but I think there's been a slight divorcing effectively of like the economy and the role it kind of has on every, you know, every single bit of, of life, as as I think experienced um, at first um, in the in the Brexit referendum, where I think you know, Remain could say, well, you know, we'll lose X amount of GDP, etc., and people didn't really care because they didn't really understand what mm. that would mean for them. And I feel like we're still very much in that space. I, I think voters very much care about economic issues, but, but they, you know, they don't see them necessarily as economic issues. And I wonder if that's not actually partially a failure of the left. Um, I suppose. Because actually, you know, you you do, I think it is up to politicians to make the case to kind of explain to voters of saying, actually, well, you know, if X happens to the economy, this is what it will mean for jobs, for housing, for, you know, again, literally everything. Mm. So I would, uh, I would personally, I think, see it as a political failure, and not necessarily as voters no longer caring about the economy.
1: I don't want to end on a downer. So, Arch, I'm going to come back to you. The circumstances drove this government into a complete 180 from small-state Toryism to paying for everything in 2020. Do you think that the kind of radical changes that, that you've talked about here could almost be forced upon a government like this? by circumstances rather than requiring a new government?
2: I think it will be forced upon the government. I think we're seeing that um, already and they're having to do things that they couldn't have imagined that they would have to do. I think as we get into the recovery and some of the real challenges uh, start hitting them, again, they'll be forced to do things that they don't generally and naturally want to do um, and for me you know i think the the three areas of hope where i think we all see a movement is i 100 percent agree with christine about the point on well-being because i think what we're going to see is that they're going to be talking about gdp growth and the fact that all looks good and people won't be feeling it and yeah. at some point you have to ask yourself what is your measure of economic success And if we're saying it's all rosy and everyone is feeling a lot of pain, we've got it wrong. So we need to think broadly, wider about that. Um, And then the other area, I think they're going to be our... um push to move on is this question of income uh, because we're going to see an income crisis at the moment they don't want to move on it um, you know we talk about the language of living income uh, Christine's talked about basic income but at some point you're going to have to confront that you know how do we ensure that there is an income level below which we say no one is allowed to fall so that people can spring back you know people can you know, rebound when things are tough um, in order to be able to thrive and at the moment our social security system doesn't provide that so I and then on green <laughs> the imperative of that is going to force them to do things that aren't natural. So I think it's the end of the sort of old ideological politics. Um, I think we are in serious times and the challenges we face uh, will force pragmatism on a government and will force it to act in a way that some people might call radical, I would call common sense.
1: Now, you've all heard about 5G mobile communications, but the existence of 5G presupposes the existence of 6G, and then 7G and 8G. What is the next generation of mobile data? What will it mean? What do you need to know before your neighbours start chopping down the masts in their back garden and wrapping their kids' heads in tinfoil? We spoke to somebody who knows.
0: Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Misha Dola. I'm professor at King's College in London, uh, working on all things digital and wireless communications. 6G is uh, 5G plus one, as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, we are very excited to start working on 6G today. We started working on 5G actually 10 years ago. So people wonder why it takes so long. It's just a really complicated system. With a bit of luck, maybe this time we can do it in, you know, six to eight years. So I'm I'm predicting that 6G will be deployed, you know, around 2026, 20, 2027. So what's the uh, qualitative difference uh, between 6G and 5G? We expect it to be a factor of 10, 10 times more data rate, uh, a gigabit per second for each of us, a latency. So a delay between, you know, the the time you click on a website and you get something back of maybe less than a millisecond. That means, you know, if you watch a, uh, you know, Netflix movie, probably you can get it much better quality. What we really think it will be used for is that world, emerging world of immersive technology, augmented reality. Imagine you're walking through the streets and you just see an overlay of characters you know, of uh, certain stuff you want to know about, information, uh, guidance, and all that. And all that requires a lot of data rate and a very immersive experience, which we cannot do with 5G. What is important is that as a tech community, we work very closely together with the demand communities. And just uh, ask them a simple question. What would you do with the technology? Is that something you would actually perceive to be useful? I believe, just thinking about, for instance, the Young Vic, where we tried with uh, uh, David Lane, essentially to 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 do a distributed Shakespeare play, *Midsummer's Night Dream*, and uh, it it was actually really interesting to separate the stages and the audiences. But it didn't feel right. The system wasn't fully immersive. So 5G wasn't yet at this point to deliver that full immersion, um, which we need to get really that emotion out, right? So when you go to a theater, when you go to a concert, you you get these uh, emotions, these endorphins. And uh, I believe with 6G, we're able to recreate that immediacy that proximity to get out of these emotions. And this is where I'm hopeful that 6G will really, really make a difference with, with the artistic demand side industry. Right, should we expect 7G? I think that's that's a really good question. We will probably will have 7G and maybe 8G, but we won't have a 9G. And I explain you why. So we always, in telecoms, we introduce an exciting concept in the odd generation. In 7G, I think we will introduce what I call and I work on this right now, self-synthesizing networks. So these will be networks which design themselves, so rather than uh, you know humans tinkering there engineers you know trying for years to make it work, we will have artificial intelligence help us design these networks. So these self-synthesizing networks will start essentially building that next generation 7G, part of 7G, we will perfect it in 8G. And then in 9G, we don't need generations anymore because these networks will just keep designing in features rather than in big tech propositions then there's always that worry about uh, you know new technology causing a lot of uh, harm to the health of people and, and animals in nature so conspiracy theories have been you know very active around 5g but you will you will maybe not know this they have been very active in 4g as well and 3g but back then the social media weren't that strong so clearly in 5g times we have amplified this quite a lot and, you know, COVID didn't really help him. So I just want to assure everybody that before we use any technology, before we start using any frequencies, we are doing a very, very rigorous testing for decades before we allow these frequencies to be used. Uh, you know, they are very, uh, very well-respected engineering uh, committees out there and buddies, independent from the telco industry which are conducting these tests and making sure that any frequency we use that they are completely safe so therefore rest assured you've got the right to worry but uh, rest assured that we as engineers do our duty to protect you
1: there you go hyperfast information coming your way around 2027 miata 6g is going to be 10 times better and 10 times faster than 5g do we actually need that what kind of businesses can it generate
2: faster, uh, you know, broadband technology, the capacity for us to uh, engage in the digital world quicker is a good thing. Um, but but I do think we need to think about how it's deployed and in whose benefit. And, you know, one of the areas that I think it could be a huge uh, help is when small businesses are thinking about the sort of technological platforms that they use. If it's pretty cheap and uh, cost-effective, then that's a good thing. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen organically. And my view is that actually... Technology is moving at a quicker pace than regulation or public policy is in order to ensure that it serves the public good. So there's quite a bit of catch up that needs to happen so that when we are coming up with these kind of innovations and improvements on technology, they're being deployed in the best way to help parts of the economy that really need the help in order to be successful.
1: Christine, have you encountered voter suspicion about 5G, the whole kind of, you know, that strange corpus of belief that somehow it's connected to COVID and somehow it's connected to harmful radiations and all this kind of cons- this conspiracy bundle.
3: Yeah, I
4: mean, we all know that there there are conspiracy theorists out there who think it's all COVID-19. It isn't COVID-19, it's something else. But I think hmm. for most people, anytime you mention an upgrade in technology now, most constituents say, is this going to mean the road's being dug up again? <laughs> um, blunt that is what people think yes we all see the improvement and we all value the improvement when it comes along but that's the initial reaction and I do I mean some of the advances that have been made in technology over the past 10-20 years have been absolutely fantastic I mean I am one of that generation who remembers when your mobile phone was the size of a brick and you know Pac-Man was the best that there was in, in, in video games but there will come a point where I think we're we've maybe reached, or will there come a point where we've reached saturation. And why are not we using this technology? We must use it for other things as well. And I'm sure the research is going on. It must have the answer to the things that it gives us in terms of speed of communication. It must give us solutions to other problems. It's certainly given us a solution during COVID. Can you imagine if we had all had to cope? With COVID nineteen in a world where we did not have Zoom, where we did not have mobile technology, where um, we couldn't, you know, send the, you know, the GP a digital photograph of the injury we had just suffered or whatever, mm-hmm. technology has actually been vital in COVID nineteen, and I think when six G comes along, people will say, "Oh, that's very interesting," and just accept it because we've got very glib about technological advances and i think that we will just start to look for well how can it be improved the next time
1: marie misha our expert thinks that 9g will be the last generation the astonishing thought of that after that we're going to have self-synthesizing networks which design themselves is it so weird to be a little worried about that you know skynet becomes self-aware and all that kind of thing
3: Oh, yeah, I think so. But also, I'd go even further. Like, I'd quite like to start a campaign that's basically like, you know, that's quite enough now. Like, I think <laughs> the internet we have right now is basically fine. I think, you know, life is more convenient than it has ever been before, I think. Do we need it to get better? So, no, I, I agree. I think I'm I'm a bit of a Luddite anyway, um, in that, you know, all the like Alexa, et cetera, I find horrific so no, I, I think let's stop now. You know, again, not, not in a to be clear, not in a conspiracy conspiracy theory way. Just in a general, like you know, that's quite enough. Uh, you know, we, we've had our fun. I, I think you know, we've reached the level of optimum internet uh, would be my take.
1: So you're going to be an internet hipster. You were into it when it was two G.
3: Well, no, exactly, exactly. I think you know what? Yeah, five G. That's enough G's. Like you know, how yes. many G's can one person want really? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Finally, Conservatives have been threatening to do it for decades and now it looks like they are finally going to privatise Channel 4. We've just been talking about how privatisation is old politics and a bad idea. Long a progressive thorn in the establishment side, Channel 4 was woke before anybody knew the word woke, championing programmes from marginalised communities, putting out some of the first gay and minority characters on television and being hounded as pornography-in-chief and Channel Swore by your favourite newspapers. Channel 4 News still runs some of the most incisive TV journalism. No wonder they want to shut it up. Niata, is there an economic case to privatise Channel channel Does the government actually need the money?
2: I really don't think there is. I mean, the government's argument is that Uh, Channel 4 doesn't get any public uh, funding. Most of it goes through advertising. And as Channel 4 comes under competition from other outlets, its advertising uh, revenue will dry up. Uh, But that doesn't really seem to be a very good argument for privatisation for two reasons. You leave it to the broadcaster to find other ways in which it can generate uh, income. It's done that pretty successfully off its own back, and I suggest it will continue doing that as the world changes. But also this kind of the model of privatisation Advertising, which is ideological, like there is, this is an ideological project. It has been proved time and time again that to be to fail. And if you needed any other example, look across the railways where the government's now having to put it into public ownership. Look across to the probation, and um, where the government's having to put it into public ownership. And I think we need to move away from this private always good public bad and in the end accept that there will be some you know institutions that are publicly run how do you do that in the best possible way so i think they're harking out to an old argument that is 40 years out of date and they need to kind of get with the times and think about how you can really build on the strengths of channel four and then for channel four to think about ways in which it raises its own revenue capacity which i'm sure it's capable of doing
1: It's worth pointing out that the board has actually said, we don't want to be privatised. We're doing fine, thanks. We don't need the extra money that you're offering us. Christine, where are the Liberal Democrats on this? uh, Are you able to uh, effectively oppose this, do you think?
4: Oh, I think so. I I think Channel 4, if you look at what has come out of Channel 4 in its lifetime, the changes in programming, the the talent that's emerged from Channel 4, it does serve a purpose. And it also serves a, a completely different audience from the BBC, for example, is very much more, has always been very much more radical. Um, and that is something I think that it's important that we hold on to. And I, you know, it does seem a bit odd that at this point in our history, when the government is trying to keep the economy afloat, when they've put so much money into supporting so many things, they seem to have this blind spot when it comes to culture and entertainment. Channel 4, I think, has fallen into that that gap as well. And I, I, I do think that Channel 4 has, I mean, I was, I was quite young when Channel Four was was started, so I, I didn't really have a view of it at the time. But I think now I regard it as something that we should be very proud of, and that is, you know, has been a significant contributor to broadcasting trends and broadcasting development across the world.
1: Marie, there's been about five attempts to privatise Channel Four since since the nineties. This one looks clearly a lot more culture war driven are they just punishing the channel because you know it's former news chief Dorothy Byrne called Boris Johnson a liar in a a speech in Edinburgh or you know channel 4 replaced the prime minister with a melting ice sculpture during a debate on climate change is it just basically a punishment beating
3: huh I'm not I'm not entirely sure I mean I I I do think that you know the channel Four head of news calling the prime minister a liar was perhaps not the kind of wisest thing to do (laughs) like given given that you know we know what this government does and likes and doesn't like I mean, it just all seems a bit pointless to me. And actually, you know, I actually reached out to a friend uh, who's a media reporter before this because I was like, actually, I don't really have an opinion on this. I should probably ask him. And, you know, and he said, well, it's all a bit pointless, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so actually, so, so you know, I, I don't actually really have much to say because I, d- I don't really understand the point of it as, you know, beyond, sorry, um, as you've said, you know, it's, it's just quite culture warzy, but especially that I don't really understand. Why this government is kind of creating again like so many new fronts? Like I sort of understand, I guess, in a cynical way. You know what? Why you'd pick up, you know, the occasional culture war, but it, it does seem to me that they're kind of doing it to everything and everyone like a kind of you know really angry sort of like child who's just fighting everyone on the playground. Which again, I'm not, I'm not really sure. You know, that's really going to work out. But yes, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm sorry, I can't offer much more than that. Apart from, <laughs> it seems a bit pointless to me, and I don't really get it.
1: And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, where, as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books or whatever that are taking our panelists' minds away from the nerve-chewing world of politics? Miata, what have you been diverting yourself with?
2: So I've just started watching Readers, which is a sort of TV series about exhausted, uh, ground down uh, parents of young children, which I have a lot of affinity with, uh, (laughs) but it's literally had me in stitches uh, Mm. because it just does a brilliant portrayal of um, just the, you know, those moments where you love your children desperately, but you kind of want to kill them at the same time. And I think it does it really, really well.
1: (laughs) This doesn't sound like escapism to me.
2: Yes. Well, a sort of torture type of escapism.
1: (laughs) Somebody else having the terrible time that you're having yourself. (laughs) Maria, how about you?
3: Um, I'm actually, this is not contemporary at all, but I finally started watching 30 Rock. And, you know, it turns out one of the most famous sitcoms in history is actually pretty good.
1: (laughs) Mm. It's all about Kenneth.
3: It is. It is. What a wonderful man.
1: I love the way that Kenneth sort of... Seems to be, they keep revealing or implying that Kenneth is like a thousand years old or something, or is supernatural, or sort of has knowledge that is not the rest of the cast are not party to.
3: And I'm still only two seasons in, so no spoilers.
1: Oh, it gets better, it gets better and better. Christine, (laughs) how about you? What what are you uh, using to uh, take away the nightmares of the world?
4: Wimbledon's back today, so that's going to help. I'll be watching Wimbledon. But what we did was at the start of the. Lockdown and back in March last year, we uh, we started watching old box sets that we hadn't watched for a while at, on streaming, um, and we started with West Wing, and then we mm-hmm. went to Friends, Frasier, ER. We're now on the final of fifteen series of. Blamey. So actually now I might go to Thirty Rock because that's the <laughs> that's the next thing. But I mean I've been reading as well, obviously, mm. but just sometimes of an evening it's nice to watch an old comedy that you enjoyed at the time and there's the nostalgic aspect to it as well as the as the entertainment and the fact that i mean everybody in my family now knows the entire script of the west wing end to end but we watched that again anyway
1: everybody in politics has to watch the west wing it's the law it's kind of it's a requirement well mine uh, is pop music again. I, I've been really enjoying a record by an artist called Gaspar Auger of the band Justice, or Justice, to pronounce them properly, the French house music band. He's done a solo album. It's called Escapades, so it's quite a good escape route. And it's just amazing. It's this grandiose, electronic, a little bit like Rush, a little bit like King Crimson, but a little bit like disco as well. Huge sonic cathedrals of sound, as far as the eye can see. And i probably pronounced his name wrong, haven't I, uh, Marie. Gaspar Oge, is that right? Oge? It, it, it,
3: it's okay. It's okay.
1: <laughs> It'll pass. Okay. But uh, yeah, give it a go on Spotify. Escapades. Very, very good. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Miata Fambulli.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks to Marie Leconte.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks to our special guest, Christine Jardine.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Do back us on Patreon if you have the spare time and the spare funds. Search Patreon Bunker Podcasts. You'll get the podcast early. You'll get fantastic merchandise, and you'll get that discount on the live show tickets Tuesday 10th of August. Put it in your diary. And back us get an honorary salute on the show. Here are some now.
2: Many thanks from me to Mitch Smith, Catherine Davies, and Mark Sheeran.
3: Best wishes from me to Justin Miller, Petal Dam,
2: and Rachel Ridley.
3: And
1: finally, best wishes from me to Mark Williams, Daniel Gibbons, and Paul Fair. We'll
0: see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Marie Kant, and Mietta Farnvilla. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Safraniewicz, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker, is a Podmasters production.